So I'm going to pray. I'm going to ask God to help me uh, in my weakness and help all of us hear and understand his word. Uh, So let's pray together. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you that when you speak, it's always for our good. Your word is true and life-giving. And so, Father, we ask for your uh, help, your kindness now by your spirit. Uh, Please, Father, enable me to preach your word clearly and helpfully as I should. Uh, And please help each of us, Father, in our different scenarios, in our different states of life, in our different thinking, uh, to have humble hearts that are eager to hear what you say and that you would build us up uh, in love and knowledge of the truth for our good and for your glory. Uh, We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Well, as you heard Sam read it, Mark chapter 10 raises for us uh, the difficult topics and difficult questions that arise around marriage, divorce and remarriage. And I call them difficult for quite a number of reasons. Uh, Firstly, just the topics alone, I suspect most of us are completely aware uh, that in recent times the biblical teaching on marriage has been challenged and then ultimately decided by the majority of voting Australians to be outdated, out of touch, and perhaps most significantly, uh, at times seen as harmful. Uh, the discussion, if you can recall, the, equality, uh, the marriage equality vote, it was heated and controversial. Uh, you may recall during that time that uh, certain churches in Melbourne's northern suburbs were vandalised with things like crucify no voters or bash the bigots spray-painted on the walls of church buildings uh, right here in Melbourne. Uh, And I suspect that for even uh, in our gathering tonight, there are people uh, who are in different places when it comes to the biblical teaching on marriage uh, between one man and one woman. Uh, Some may be rejecting uh, such an idea. Maybe it's a source of grief for you or just something that's uncomfortable and you would rather not discuss it at all. Yet for, marry, uh, for others, marriage is a difficult subject, not due to its definition and the controversy surrounding it, just because it raises questions of grief, unfulfilled longings, loneliness, perhaps even histories of rejection, maybe the hurt of failure either done to us uh, or by us. Uh, and I suspect that that may be the case even more so when it comes to the question of divorce and remarriage. Uh, Perhaps, again, not because of its controversy, just because it's so personal. I imagine a majority of us here tonight have in some way had contact with or been affected by divorce. Uh, This is a gathering, a mixed community in which I suspect here tonight there are those who have been divorced and remarried, perhaps even considering them. Some may be the children of divorce, as Jean mentioned. You might have divorced parents, separated parents. Maybe you've seen the fallout of that happen in other families because the consequences always are widespread. Uh, The topics that Jesus raises for us tonight are difficult and confronting, and I want to acknowledge that. And my aim in preaching Mark 10 is not to drudge up old memories or hurt for us, but faithfully unpack what God is saying to us in his word. Uh, And as Jean said, we're in Mark 10 because we've just finished Mark chapter 9 as we work our way through Mark's gospel. And hopefully if you have been here, you can recall that really over the last month, we've been travelling with Jesus and the disciples as he's left Galilee and they're on their way to Jerusalem where Jesus will die 
as he promised, being rejected, handed over uh, and crucified. And Jesus is using this final trip to train his disciples, to equip them in what living the cross-shaped life will look like, a life of denying yourself, taking up your cross and following Jesus. Uh, And while on this journey, we're told that there is a conflict between Jesus and the Jewish leaders, the Pharisees, uh, and they put marriage and divorce on the agenda. So if you've got your Bibles open, look with me at verse 1. We're told that Jesus is on the move, presumably leaving Capernaum, where he's been since Mark 9.33, where he was teaching them in a house. Uh, And while they're travelling, notice that Mark tells us that he's been teaching the crowd, and we don't get the actual teaching. We kind of get the Q&A that follows the teaching in verse 2, when the Pharisees come and ask, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? But notice that Mark tells us what they are doing. Uh, The question isn't from these kind of pastorally sensitive leaders who are seeking to learn and lead faithfully. For them, it's a test. It's a trap. This is a loaded question for two key reasons. Firstly, in verse 1, we're told that they've crossed the Jordan and they are now in the region of Perea, which is under the rule of King Herod. Uh, The ruler, you may remember, all the way back in Mark chapter 6, had John the Baptist beheaded uh, after he told him that his marriage was not lawful to his brother's wife. Uh, And so maybe the Pharisees are hoping that Jesus will say something similar, say something public, and therefore put himself on a collision course with Herod. Would Jesus be faithful to Scripture even under the threat of death? Maybe they are trying to get him to the cross even quicker. Uh, But this test would have also put Jesus at odds with some of the Jewish leaders who actually had a big debate and divided over their understanding of what the legitimate grounds for divorce were. Uh, There were different schools of thought amongst the Jewish rabbis of the time. And ultimately, whatever Jesus would say would put himself in conflict with at least one of them. And so this test was going to expose Jesus to threat, political and religious conflict, while also examining how faithful he would be to Scripture. Uh, And we need to see that the question is actually not whether divorce itself is lawful. Uh, Everyone actually at the time agreed that it was. Uh, In all the schools of the Jewish rabbis, even in the pagan Rome, Divorce was legal and practiced and accepted. But of particular concern and the debate were the acceptable grounds for divorce. Uh, Matthew's account in Matthew 19 of this exact same event and conversation makes that clear as he records the Pharisees asking, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? And all of it, all the debate, all the controversy centred on their understanding of a key Old Testament passage that addressed divorce, Deuteronomy 24, which Sam read for us. Uh, There in verse 1, Moses says, If a man marries a woman, but she becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her, he may write her a divorce certificate, hand it to her, and send her away from his house. And the debate centred on that simple phrase, something indecent. 
Uh, and amongst the rabbis, there are essentially two main schools of thought. There was the conservative school of the Shammai, uh, who understood indecent really only to mean unfaithfulness or adultery. That alone was the legitimate grounds for divorce. But there was the more liberal or loose school of thinking, the halal group, who focused on the word something more than the word indecent. Uh, And that is, they pretty much saw it as anything that the man found embarrassing, displeasing, or he just didn't like. Uh, Literally, you can find the writings of uh, this group where things like burning his breakfast would be legitimate grounds, or simply finding another woman that's not his wife more attractive than his wife. That alone was enough. And the question was, who will Jesus side with? Will he take the bait and fall into the trap? But as is often the case, when Jesus is kind of put into a corner with a test, he just asks his own question. Verse 3. He replied to them, what did Moses command you? They said, Moses permitted us to write divorce papers and send her away. But Jesus said to them, he wrote this command for you because of your hardness, the hardness of your hearts. You see, this is kind of a classic religious moment. Religiosity that has no joy in obeying God or concern for what honours him or what he wants. They are just looking for the escape clause. Notice Jesus says, what did Moses command you? And they respond with what was permitted. You see, divorce was never commanded anywhere or even encouraged. It is regulated. In Deuteronomy 24, Moses is regulating or restricting the harm that can be done, especially to the woman as she is divorced. And you see, these people's hard hearts cause them to sin, and as sin caused marriages to break down, Moses gave this concession in Deuteronomy 24 to especially authenticate that divorce had taken place through the written papers that would then allow the wife to remarry and protect her from future harm, but then also to regulate future marriages that could take place after that, as we heard in the reading. But you see, the hard hearts of the Pharisees had turned a concession into a license. Instructions designed to discourage and regulate divorce had become the basis to promote it and make it easy to break the marriage bond. And I think this actually sounds a helpful uh, warning and a necessary warning for those of us that are prone to what I would call kind of bare minimum Christianity. You know, where we're highly selective about what passages we look at when it comes to what God calls us to do or to be. It's the attitude of the Christian that's ready to seek forgiveness but never, uh, but never actually take on accountability. It's especially seen in the presumption that grace is always there because sin ultimately is just inevitable. It's the Christianity that prioritizes what's easy and comfortable while conveniently avoiding anything hard or confronting. Uh, and we see that what Jesus gets them to think about is what God, Moses, commanded, but they just want to focus on the permission. You see, they could have come back to Jesus with Genesis 2 that he's about to quote to them, but they conveniently avoid it. They overlook what God says about marriage to enable easy divorce, 
Notice they've got no time for Malachi 2, where God says that to divorce your wife is to hate her. They've got no conversation on that. Their approach really is, it's like trying to learn how to fly a plane, but all you do is practice the crash landing. Or asking someone the key to a great barbecue and only getting the answer, well, just keep one hand on the fire extinguisher. Their concern is what not is not what's good, not God's design and purpose for marriage, but what's easy. And so rather than enter the debate or even comment on divorce, Jesus takes them to creation, to God's original design and purpose for humanity. He's showing them that their flippant attitude towards divorce and their desire to debate what constitutes legitimate cause indicates that they've missed the point completely. Divorce is a departure from God's original plan and intent for marriage seen in creation. So Jesus takes them to the beginning with a quote from Genesis 1.27, that God made humanity as male and female who are equal as God's image bearers yet different from each other. They are a complementary pair. And so the creation of a binary gender as man and woman is grounded in the will of God and therefore foundational for marriage. Marriage that is the union of two who are equal yet different. Together they share in the commission from God to fill the earth and subdue it. Something that we heard in Genesis 2.18, Adam could not do by himself for it was not good for the man to be alone. And so in verse 7, Jesus then goes to Genesis chapter 2 with a quote. He says, For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, and the two will become one flesh, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. Uh, In marriage, one family is left behind to form a new one. Uh, But not just a, a new family, the two actually become one flesh in their sexual union. And so marriage is how humanity fulfills the great com- the commission to be fruitful and to multiply. It's the context for bearing and raising children and thus foundational for our society. And I know that virtually everything I just read from Mark 10 and just said to you is controversial, widely rejected, or even seen as harmful. But we need to see as Christians that Jesus is grounding us here in the written words of Scripture because they are the very words of God himself that are therefore foundational for reality and therefore for life. Jesus is giving us the biblical lens on how to understand our world and ourselves. And so for us, we might feel that as Jesus is asked the the test about his position on divorce, I think Christians can feel this great insecurity, this great fear that we don't want to talk about this or discuss it either. But far from something to be ashamed of or keep quiet about, this is something to enjoy and conform our thinking and our living to. Jesus is grounding us in what is true, And therefore, it will be good for us to believe it and to live it out. Uh, Not just for our understanding of gender and what it is to be human, but also and especially of marriage. 
Because far from some uh, simple human institution that can and should change with time and culture, the marriage union of one man to one woman is not simply God's intent. Jesus says it's also God's action. Look at verse 9. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one, or more helpfully, more literally, no man separate. You see, in marriage, the one joining together the husband and the wife as they become one, a new creation, is God. The sanctity of marriage is God-given and God-authorised. And the contrast there is meant to be a solemn warning. No one, no created man or woman should separate what God himself has joined together. And so I hope you can see that as these Pharisees come with their debates and questionings about the grounds for divorce, they have strayed so far from the sanctity of God-given marriage. And so for Jesus' people, divorce must never become the easy escape clause for marriage when it's no longer convenient, never the fallback plan if things just aren't as wonderful and fulfilling as we hoped but it's something completely inconceivable for it goes against the design and will of God. And while we know that sin will always make things complex and messy, as Jesus' people, we know that God's intent is that marriage is the exclusive, lifelong commitment between one man and one woman. And so our goal as a community is to promote and nurture marriages that are exclusive and lifelong. A commitment that has important implications, whether we're single or dating, married, whether we're longing for marriage or content without it. And we'll come back to those questions because for now we've, we've strayed from the question of divorce, which clearly has left the disciples a bit shaken. Uh, Does this mean what Jesus has said in verses 6 to 9, that uh, divorce uh, is always wrong and never acceptable? And so in verses 11 to 12, now away from the crowds, the disciples take their opportunity to ask Jesus about this matter. Verse 11, he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. Also, if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Uh, In Jewish law, a woman didn't have the right to divorce a husband, uh, though in Roman law she did. Uh, Likewise, in the teaching of the Jewish rabbis at the time, uh, a man was said to have been able to commit adultery against his wife's father uh, or even the husband of the woman he had the affair with, but never actually his wife. But Jesus says he commits adultery against her if he remarries. And so in verses 11 to 12, Jesus is giving equal status and responsibility to the wife and the husband in line with the creation account of Genesis. Both are responsible and will have committed adultery against their first spouse if they divorce, then remarry. Jesus says they will be guilty of adultery for which the penalty in the Mosaic law was death. But does this mean that divorce and remarriage are never acceptable? Uh, Is that what Jesus is saying here? Uh, Well, it's important to know that what we have here in Mark 10 is uh, not the only word on divorce from Scripture. 
Uh, in Matthew's account, Matthew 19, again, the same event being recorded, there is often what's called Matthew's exception clause. Uh, in verse 9, this is what Jesus says to the disciples. He says, I tell you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Notice that Jesus says that divorce on the grounds of sexual immorality, that is the Greek word porneia, from which we get the word pornography, uh, speaking of any sexual activity that is outside the marriage covenant of the one man and one woman, uh, he says on that basis to then divorce and remarry would not be committing adultery. And that seems like a pretty important detail, doesn't it? Uh, wouldn't it uh, be helpful if that was in Mark chapter 10? Uh, so why isn't it in Mark 10? Well, I have thought about that question a lot uh, this week. Uh, and I think it's probably because as Mark writes to uh, a Christian audience predominantly in Rome, there was actually no ambiguity about the question of divorce on the grounds of unfaithfulness or adultery. Uh, as we heard at the start, divorce was a common and acceptable practice both among Jews and the Romans. And unfaithfulness, sexual immorality, was always understood as a legitimate cause for divorce because it broke the one flesh union of marriage. In fact, Roman law at the time had criminalized adultery for both men and women that was to be punished and divorce was expected in the case of adultery. And so in verses 11 to 12, Jesus is not saying that you cannot divorce on the basis of sexual immorality. That clearly is the case from Matthew 19. What he is categorically rejecting is what we would call no-fault divorce. You see, the Pharisees and even our society, with its flippant approach to the marriage covenant... Uh, we're using divorce to break the one flesh union that God himself had joined together, therefore making the remarriage adultery. Uh, and you can imagine how direct and uncomfortable Jesus' words would be for these hard-hearted Pharisees who were using the law to allow quick divorce. How confronting for these so-called religious elite to be deemed as authorizing or practicing adultery that even their pagan culture had criminalized. And so for Jesus' people, a biblical view of marriage grounded in God's will and creation means that divorce goes against God's intention and must be avoided at all costs, but it is in certain cases permitted. And in fact, that actually seems to be the purpose of divorce. You see, not to end the marriage, but to recognize and formalize the breaking of the one flesh union that has already taken place. That a husband or wife who has already separated and broken what God joined together through their sexual immorality. Uh, and as you heard, as Sam read it, in Deuteronomy 24, Moses is not authorizing or creating the grounds for divorce, but actually regulating the remarriage process that would take place. And I think that's consistent with what we do see in other passages, uh, especially 1 Corinthians 7. 
Uh, in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul addresses all things, marriage, singleness, and he even quotes, I think, the words of Jesus from Mark 10. Uh, in 1 Corinthians 7, verses 10 to 12, he is speaking directly to married couples and he urges them to stay married and not divorce. But in the context of abandonment, where an unbelieving spouse wants to leave the believing spouse, Paul says the believer should let them. The Christian is not encouraged to initiate the divorce, and especially if the other partner is willing to stay with them. Remember, the context would probably be they were married, then one of them became a Christian, and Paul is saying, then you can still stay married, that's good. But if the unbeliever now wants to leave the believer, they should not fight them on that. They can leave them because ultimately it is the unbelieving spouse leaving that would break the one flesh union. Uh, and I think we see similar provisions in the Bible uh, for where there is neglect or abuse in the marriage, where ultimately one partner is abandoning the other. Uh, but I suspect that this is raising some questions, maybe lots of questions, and there are, of course, many situations that are always unique and complex. And so let me encourage you to, as we do every week, test all things of what you've heard tonight against Scripture, seek godly counsel from trustworthy people, uh, and of course, as we come to after the sermon tonight, ask your questions. Uh, and I'm thankful that Neil will field those questions because he has a lot more wisdom on this subject than me. Uh, but notice, even here, as we read it, we're not given a lot of detail, right? Jesus clearly uh, is not setting a goal here to give us a detailed manual on how to do divorce and remarriage. But I think the principle that Jesus rejects no-fault divorce while also acknowledging that there are actions that break the marriage union and therefore divorce is permitted, though not commanded in that case, and therefore so is remarriage. Put simply, divorce isn't always sinful, though sin is always the cause. Uh, while we may still have lots of questions about this, uh, I hope that we can see that Jesus takes his, as Jesus is taking his disciples on this journey to Jerusalem, he uses the question from the Pharisees to leave his own followers with no ambiguity about the sanctity of God-given marriage. And that is we are to see marriage rightly, to see marriage as it really is from the beginning of creation. No ambiguity that we as individuals and as a community who confess Jesus as Lord will seek to honour him in all we do. We must uphold and nurture marriage as given by God, the exclusive lifelong commitment between one man and one woman. And we are in a culture that allows and normalises no-fault divorce. Where one-third of Australian marriages will end in divorce, this is actually raising the bar. A view, that married, a view of marriage that doesn't contemplate divorce as a legitimate option, that doesn't have the escape plan or an easy out clause, but real, lifelong fidelity. And it really did raise the bar for those listening when Jesus first spoke these words in a house in Perea. Again, Matthew 19 is helpful as Matthew records for us how the disciples responded to Jesus' teaching. 
Matthew 19:10. If the relationship, uh, sorry, if the relationship of a man with his wife is like this, it's better not to marry. Uh, you see, we know that this is a high bar, and we know that things go wrong. Marriages can go through stresses and challenges, whether they're financial or fertility. Events can change people. Pandemics can come out of nowhere. Priorities shift. There can be real grief and guilt in marriage that becomes a constant drain. Uh, And it's a grief and guilt that can spread well beyond the couple itself. Uh, This was brought home to me earlier this year uh, as I was teaching the Ten Commandments to a group of youth. As we came to the Fifth and Seven Commandments, that is to honour your parents and to not commit adultery, I found that exactly half of the group I was teaching were from either separated or divorced homes. And when discussing uh, why we think God commands these things, why God has such a high view of the marriage union and family covenant, one girl simply replied, because when parents break up, no one is happy and no one wins. And as I said at the start, I know that this is the gathering tonight of people in very different places, of the single and the married, of the separated and the divorced, uh, of the remarried, or perhaps contemplating any, any of them. And so what will it look like for us as a community and as individuals to honour the sanctity of God-given marriage? Well, for those of you who are single, uh, as we raise the bar to view marriage as it really is, uh, it may clarify for you that it's just not for you. Uh, And we heard that in Matthew 19. And if you keep reading in Matthew 19, or if you read Paul's instructions in 1 Corinthians 7, you'll actually see that that is expected. You see, God's good design and intent for marriage does not require that all people will get married. The single unmarried life is good. Jesus, in his perfect humanity, his unmarried perfect humanity, clearly shows us that. But for many who are single, uh, who are pursuing a relationship or marriage, or perhaps anticipate at some point they will, uh, a right view of God-given marriage means that we will be patient, thoughtful, and thorough when it comes to choosing when and who we marry. The choice to marry is serious and binding. Uh, And this means we need to continually guard our hearts and minds against distorted images of marriage uh, that that the world gives us or perhaps that we even give ourselves. Uh, We live in a world that confuses love with infatuation and says a commitment should only be binding as long as it is convenient for you. Uh, I recently went to a wedding where the ceremony component lasted for no more than 10 minutes and the vows that were given were simply the declaration that I will now call you wife and you will now call me husband. That was it. But also, have you ever noticed how Hollywood movies, uh, particularly the romance movies, they always finish with the couple getting together as if all the hard work and conflict and the obstacles that exist are just to bring them together and it will just be actually smooth sailing thereafter. We will need to guard against false notions that marriage will fix all of our problems, satisfy all our needs, 
for that ultimately puts an unbearable burden on another person asking them to do the very things that God alone can do. Uh, And I know that for some of you, this kind of is just killing the romance and excitement of marriage, right? But it is so necessary for us. Shortly after I got engaged to Holly, uh, a good friend of mine who has been divorced for some time came and urged us to communicate well with each other because the loneliness he experienced in his marriage was far greater than the loneliness of being single. And so just as God's word grounds us in what marriage is, it also will ground us in our expectation that marriage will be work. As two saved sinners promise to love and cherish each other, it will, in need, it will need the, have the need to be patient, to forgive, to speak hard truths in love, and perhaps worst of all, to hear them. Uh, so we'll prepare for marriage, both in singleness and in dating, by investing first and foremost in being faithful followers of Jesus, people who rest in and are shaped by the love of our crucified Lord. We'll invest in the character of a follower of Jesus for ourselves and we will value that character in a potential spouse. You see, marriage is from God and it's by God. And as his disciples of Jesus, as disciples of Jesus who live for the glory of God, we will want our marriages to honour God. Uh, Christopher Ash says in his helpful little book called Married for God, surprisingly the key to a good marriage is uh, not to pursue a good marriage, but to pursue the honour of God. We need to replace this selfish model of marriage with one in which we work side by side in God's garden, that is God's world, rather than gaze forever into each other's eyes. Uh, For those of us that are married, it means we'll actually have to continually work at them. When conflict and difficulty comes, we won't start by looking for the way out. It means we'll make a priority of our marriage and we'll resolve and reconcile as we need to. And it will mean acknowledging the hurt that we've caused or received. And yes, it will even mean seeking the help we need to keep us focused on the goal of lifelong faithfulness. And it will be simple things like listening well to our spouse, prioritising time together, expecting that it won't be just a one-off thing that we do because marriages go through seasons of difficulty and change like getting a new job or maybe losing one. Moving house, the agony of not being able to conceive or the loss of sleep after the arrival of a child. Sickness and the death of a parent. Any number of things that come into your life are part of the marriage experience that will need patience, compassion, boundaries, prayer and wise support from others. And we'll do this because it's our mutual goal to walk faithfully together because marriage is lifelong. And I emphasise wise support because we will likely need to be careful about who we seek to help us. Uh, I was speaking with a couple recently where both of them received the same advice from their non-Christian colleagues any time they share some level of conflict or disagreement in their marriage. The advice is simple. Withhold sex, move out and make ultimatums until the other person changes because you deserve better. And they won't realise how good they've got it until you're gone. Can I suggest to you that is completely toxic 
and destructive for marriages, but almost mainstream advice. Uh, But I'm sure that many of us, perhaps most of us, have seen firsthand the breakdown of marriage. And as a community of followers of Jesus, we can expect that among us, there will be the joyful beginnings of marriages, but maybe also, sadly, the ending of them. Among Jesus' people, there will always be a mixture of the single and the married, the separated, the divorced, the widowed, or the children of separated or divorced parents. And so as we join together as Jesus' people living the cross-shaped life, we'll actually need each other. We'll need the support and encouragement of one another. We'll need rebuke and prayer and patience and compassion. Honouring marriage in community, in the community of the single and the separated, means we need to know each other well, support each other, check in with each other. But above all, we will actually need to be in a community that keeps pointing each other back to Jesus. Jesus who calls us to deny ourselves and follow him. And especially to point each other to the cross of our Lord Jesus that assures us that we are forgiven and deeply loved. And I stress this because it is the comfort and assurance we need Because whether you're single or married or divorced or separated or in conflict, we need the comfort and assurance of where our sin has made life messy or the sin of others has made life messy. It is so wonderful to know that his grace is sufficient and that we are people who are nurtured and sustained in living faithfully for Jesus, not by guilt and not by shame, but the absolute assurance of his faithful love demonstrated on the cross. And he has given us each other to speak the truth in love so that we would honour him together. Let's pray that we would do that well. Father, we know that for many of us tonight, your word uh, in Mark 10 has been both challenging and confronting. And so we rejoice that you are the God of all comfort who speaks for our good. And we ask that you would be merciful now that we uh, would hear, accept and trust your word and respond as we should. Please, Father, make us your faithful, holy, pleasing people. Cause us to be those who honour marriage both individually and as a community, regardless of our status. Father, please help us to flee sexual immorality and all sin. Please give us courage to forgive and reconcile where needed. Give wisdom, patience, perspective and faithfulness as many of us will navigate complex situations, whether in singleness or in marriage or divorce and remarriage. And Father, we thank you that you know us, our situation and our needs, for we are your people. So please ground each of us afresh in the love and faithfulness of our Lord Jesus, that we are his forgiven, redeemed people, his precious bride, and that he will come one day come and wipe every tear from our eyes. Help us to long for that day and honour him until he comes. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.